Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Gotti Kaufman, Managing Director and CEO of RCLCO. If you're listening to our podcast, then you probably know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development worldwide. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking with Charlie Brindell, Executive Chairman of Mill Creek Residential Trust. Prior to the founding of Mill Creek Residential Trust, Charlie was associated with uh, Trammell Crow affiliated entities for 28 years, including the Trammell Crow Company, Crow Holdings, and Trammell Crow Residential, where he served as President and CEO. His real estate career also includes three years in commercial mortgage banking at Cameron Brown Company, and more than seven years in Southwide Development Company, a Memphis-based real estate management and development firm, where he served as Vice President of Finance and President and Chief Operating Officer. A native of Wilmington, North Carolina, Charlie is a graduate of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of our podcast series today. Thank you, Gotti, and I'm happy to be with you today. Well, good. Same here. When when I first met you, Charlie, you, you may recall, was in the context of your then board role at the Trammell Crow Residential Company. My vivid memory of that uh, meeting, which was in a hotel conference room in Washington, D.C., was that there was this guy, very quiet, sitting sort of in the back of the room, whom I've not met before, except for being introduced to and didn't know anything about, And as the meeting went on, it was a strategic planning session trying to figure the strategic direction of the Trammell Crow Residential Company. He, Charlie Brindell, began asking what turned out to be the most probing and challenging questions of his colleagues and and of us. And very quickly, it became obvious to me that uh, this very quiet man punches well above his weight and the questions that he asks and the thinking that he engages in at the strategic level are an inspiration to people like me who like to think about strategy. So ever since then, Charlie, which goes back maybe 15 years, I have uh, enjoyed very much our interaction, working together, learning from you and working with you on strategy and on business development for your company. Thank you, Gotti. That all is very flattering. I must say over 15 years, I've gained a little weight, so I'm I'm hopeful I can still punch above it. Not a problem. <laughs> and if you have gained weight, it's not obvious to the naked eye. So, Charlie, just to kind of set the table, I, I provided a very high-level overview of your bio, your current activity, and a bit of the history. But maybe you can give us a, a quick sense for how you came to be where you are today with Mill Creek Residential Trust. Sure, Gotti. As you touched on, I started my real estate career in 1972 as a commercial mortgage banker with Cameron Brown Company, which at that time was among the top 10 commercial residential mortgage banking firms in the United States. At that point in time, mortgage banking firms did a combination of loan origination and loan servicing, so it was a much more different business than it is today. I was stationed in Orlando, Florida, and Central Florida was exploding by virtue of the recent opening of Disney World. But shortly following the opening of Disney World and and my relocation to Florida, there was a recession that loomed in 1974, and I relocated up to Atlanta as Cameron Brown was downsizing around the country. And then later in 1975, I accepted an offer to join a Memphis, Tennessee-based developer and manager, rather, of industrial property as their head of real estate finance. And then over the course of a few years, uh, in 1980, I became the president chief operating officer of that company. That was Southwide Development Company, which you also mentioned. In 1982, 
I joined the Trammell Crow Company, the Trammell Crow Commercial Company, as a partner in conjunction with a portfolio of industrial assets that we were selling to a Trammell Crow Company partnership. From that point forward, I was engaged in a variety of capacities with the Trammell Crow Commercial Company, including running Trammell Crow Southeast, which was the southeastern region of Trammell Crow Company, both as a development business and then later as a FIFA services business in the 90s, and then joined Crow Holdings, which was the family office and still is the family office of the Trammell Crow family, and was involved in Crow Holdings' transition into the real estate private equity fund management business. And then, again, Gotti, as you mentioned, in my capacity at Crow Holdings, I was also on the board of Trammell Crow Residential Company and then later joined the Trammell Crow Residential Company in 2008. And then with a number of my partners at Trammell Crow Residential, we formed Mill Creek Residential Trust in late 2010 and launched it in January of 2011. Great story, great evolution. I'm sure we can have a podcast uh, dedicated to the history and evolution of Trammell Crow Company and the trials and tribulations over the 20, 38 years now of your tenure and engagement with that company and all the different things that they did. In itself, it would be an incredibly fascinating story, but let's not do that today. Before we launch into the real estate business and your take on that and what you're doing in that business, your thoughts about it, give us a little bit of a view of Charlie, the personal side of you. Well, I was raised in a middle-class household in southeastern North Carolina, Wilmington, North Carolina specifically. All of my schooling was in public school systems, including a state university, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I received a bachelor's degree in 1971. I have two grown daughters, one of whom resides in South Florida and the other of whom lives in North Carolina. And I am, I should hasten to add, I'm ever hopeful to be blessed with grandchildren at some point in the not too distant future, but none yet. My wife and I reside in Dallas. We have a ranch property in East Texas to which we escape at every opportunity. Both of us love the outdoors and I in particular like to hunt and fish and play golf. And so in the time that I'm not dedicating to business, I am typically involved in one or more of those pursuits. I should hasten to add that my family is my greatest source of pride, accomplishment, and happiness. And uh, together, we all love to travel. We've done that together extensively, and we frequently try to get together in warm climates surrounded by water, which is an environment that we all really love. That's a wonderful family picture, Charlie. I'm, I'm delighted to learn that. I did not know uh, much of this, so that's a great story. And we share a lot of in common. I, too, would love to have some grandchildren one of these days. My daughters are definitely of age, so I'm ready. Katie and Amy, if you're listening, please, uh, I'm ready. Uh, other, <laughs> otherwise, I love hearing about you. So back to you. You obviously made a choice pretty early in your life to focus on real estate. What attracted you to the real estate what got you into that business in the first place? Well, I'd like to say that it was the result of a consciously thoughtful career plan, but that truthfully is not the case. As I mentioned earlier, I, I had received an undergraduate degree from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1971. I worked and funded my way through college after my freshman year, and I graduated with approximately $2,500 in student debt which for me was a princely sum. Back then it was a lot and, of money. Uh, it was. And uh, candidly, I needed a job. And mortgage banking wasn't so much a conscious career decision or pursuit for me as it was just a fortuitous confluence of circumstances and friendships, which led me to an interview and subsequently a job offer from Cameron Brown Company. But it did not take me long after a quick immersion into the business of commercial mortgage banking to learn that it was something that I really loved. I wouldn't have told Cameron Brown Company in 1972, but I loved it so much I would have worked for free for a time. And I've learned over the years, Gotti, that success 
can be as much, if not more, what you make from good fortune and circumstance than anything from a conscious and highly detailed life plan. So I have been indeed fortunate, dating back uh, many, many years, to have early in my career gotten into an industry and a business that I really think I was probably made for. It's been a fun career. So you have done a few things on the way to what ended up being your destiny, which is multifamily development, rental apartment development, and operations. Let's focus on that business. What's changing in that business, and how do you envision the internal and external environment mutating or evolving looking out 5, 10, 20 years? Well, that's an interesting question. The business of apartment development and operations and ownership has become a much more institutionally professional, I might say, business over the past 10 to 20 years. All of the elements that we're involved in, be that site selection or planning, design and construction, capital formation, property operations, asset and portfolio management, even accounting and reporting, each separately and together require much more, a much higher level, shall we say, of professionalism and a more disciplined approach and focus on results than ever before. And then if you couple that with the fact that today's apartment resident, our primary customer, is far more savvy and has a much higher level of expectation than ever in the past, we no longer simply provide shelter. We're trying to create real communities for our our resident customers and the sense of a real home for our resident customers. So those are big, big changes over the last 10 to 20 years. I think a lot about how things might change further, Gotti. And over the next 10 years, I really believe that technological advancements and evolution could change our industry. And when I say our industry, I'm, I'm thinking of the entire real estate industry beyond anything we can comprehend today. I think we could be on the cusp of advancements in many ways that will fundamentally change what we do and how we do it. And as it relates to the apartment industry, I think those changes could be significantly beyond anything that we've experienced almost since the advent of what today are are routinely recognized large amenitized apartment communities, which were really first uh, first developed, uh, conceived and developed in the late 60s and early 70s. Prior to the 60s and 70s, apartment development, like most real estate development, was just a cottage industry. In the 60s and 70s, it became uh, a much more widespread business. At that point in time, you had the concurrent emergence of regional developers. And many of those regional developers throughout the 70s and 80s then became national developers. Since that point in time, there hasn't been a lot of fundamental change in the business of apartment development and ownership. There's been a lot of change in capital formation, obviously. But I think as I look out over the next 10 years, we could see changes that are transformational in terms of what we do, how we do it and where we do it. Seems to me, Charlie, that there are some really interesting changes I'd love to get your take about. Sort of, we'll go from big conceptual things to maybe more specific aspects. Uh, one change that I've observed that I think is very well documented is that the big get bigger, the bigger developers, the bigger home builders, the bigger multifamily owners and operators are getting much bigger with greater access to capital, greater asset base to work from, greater talent pool to draw from. And the quest for size is probably insatiable that at the end, there are going to be those who win the game because they were able to continue to grow. And as they grow, it appears that the origins of those companies, which were very much anchored in specialization in certain geographies and in certain types of housing, begin to get challenged and they begin to grow outside those areas of specialty. To begin with, many of them are taking product expertise in multifamily or home building and making that a national platform. And so growth can be accommodated 
by simply expanding into new markets, growing into those markets, establishing footprints and footholds in those markets and expanding beyond that. And some of the national companies are beginning to reach the end of that geographic expansion. They can do more in the markets where they are, but they can really go to new markets. Mill Creek residential in some ways is not quiet at its potential maybe geographic footprint or even market penetration maximum, but is it reasonable to say that at some point in the future you will begin to think, as are others in the shelter, in the housing industry, about broadening your offerings, broadening your activities beyond the markets we know you to be in today and the products we know you to be in today? Yes, I think that is uh, not only possible, I think that's probable. We have begun to talk about our business as a business of shelter, and shelter can mean lots of different things, both in terms of how you define shelter, but what you also do within the context of the shelter business. So I think our opportunity is both geographic and penetration within our geography, but also more broadly elements of the shelter business that we're not yet in and involved in. But I would also say, as I think about the business longer term, I could see a bifurcation or a barbell effect, if you will, where capital is attracted both to those who can demonstrate an ability to successfully grow and expand beyond perhaps what is today viewed as a core expertise, but also to, on the other end of the barbell, the sharpshooter, the real specialist, you know, the microsurgeon, if you will. And I think where you'd, you'd like not to find yourself is somewhere in the middle, because I do think the large will get larger. There'll be fewer sharpshooters on the other end, but I expect that those sharpshooters are going to be highly specialized and very adept at what they do. Do you see a sharpshooter strategy or a company that is choosing the sharpshooter strategy? Do you see that to have a limit on how large one can be as a sharpshooter? Can you be sharpshooter at any scale, geographically and otherwise, or is there a bit of a regulator on that? I think there's probably a regulator. I think the reality is that as those who fancy themselves and demonstrate real success as a sharpshooter try to expand beyond that element, whether that element is a product type or a geography, almost by definition to be a sharpshooter, you really got to be highly focused and highly specialized, and that's harder to scale. Of course, sharpshooters can become components of larger, more diverse organizations, and that's a way to grow. But I think sharpshooters are, by and large, and almost by definition, highly trained, intensely focused on specific products, product types, and geographies. Yeah, that my observation too. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, I I think that there is a real limit to how you can grow a sharpshooter strategy because fundamentally it requires a very deep knowledge of a market and that probably does end up sort of limiting the capacity to grow unless you can pull together a coalition of sharpshooters in various markets and roll them up in a way into a larger company. In many ways. That's exactly what Mill Creek has done, that you have really smart, very knowledgeable local players who run divisions, geographic uh, territories for you, who act like local sharpshooters, and they are all affiliated with a mothership. Exactly. How do you manage that tension between having an entrepreneurial local sharpshooter in your markets with the much larger, what you called earlier, professional more institutional quality, institutional grade, with much greater emphasis on accounting and reporting. How do you marry those two things culturally, operationally, to make sure that you don't lose the spirit and the competitive advantage of the local sharpshooter while not compromising on the discipline and level of professionalism required to succeed in today's game at that scale? Well, that's a great question. I would say first, it's really hard work. And you use the word tension. I view it as a healthy tension, and tension works both ways. There's tension from the local sharpshooters to, um, shall we say, a national overlay, and there's always tension in the context of a national overlay on entrepreneurial sharpshooters who, by their nature, are type A personalities who really would prefer to work unfettered. 
I think what has worked for us is one, a very high level of respect and regard for the sharpshooters, independent partners that we have in the field who really do execute our business day in and day out. Our business is not executed by Charlie Brindell or Bill McDonald or Mike Heffley. You know, we provide guidance and we provide oversight and we provide a lot of resources, but the business of development and ownership and operations day in and day out is still very much a local business and we actually are pretty jealous about guarding the purview of our local offices and our partners in those offices to run that business. I really do believe that, you know, it starts with hiring good people, the best at what they do, be it development or construction or property operations or asset management. You need to establish a vision. The vision needs to be a consistent one. You need to set expectations for meeting that vision. And then you need to be willing to get out of the way and not micromanage. And if you hire the right people and you've got a pretty good system of checks and balances, not too tight, but not too loose, my experience over a lot of years is good things come from that. That's good insights. I appreciate your sharing those with us. Uh, it just dawned on me that perhaps not all of our listeners know Mill Creek and what it does. Uh, do you want to give us that two-minute summary of who Mill Creek is and what y'all do as a business? Sure, happy to. We are a market rate. That is, we don't do affordable or, or subsidized multifamily housing. We're an apartment builder, owner, and operator in 14 markets around the United States, uh, primarily from the East Coast on the northern tip in Boston, southern tip Miami. We operate in the Texas markets in the Mountain West with an office in Denver and then on the West Coast with offices in Northern and Southern California and in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle and Portland. We have, as of today, 797 associates. We're vertically integrated, so we do all of our own property level management. We asset and portfolio manage on behalf of our partners, our institutional capital partners and ourselves, and we also do all of our own construction. So we're vertically integrated in terms of development, construction, acquisitions. We buy existing stabilized apartment assets from others, own those and operate those together with our partners, and then conduct all of our property operations with our own people. Relative to your peer groups, Charlie, how would you measure the relativity of Mill Creek in size, scope of activities, uh, you know, however you track the company? There is a uh, there is a, a published ranking of apartment developers each year that is conducted by the National Multifamily Housing Council. We have, since our inception in 2011, ranked in the top 10. I don't think we've been lower than seven in our first year. Last year, we were number two. So we are we are typically in the top five in terms of development starts. That's measured by the number of apartment homes started on an annual basis. But our focus, Gotti, is not so much quantity as it is the quality of what we're doing and where we're doing it. So with 14 offices, we have a certain expectation for a level of activity year in and year out, but no specific goal to be number one, two, or three. We just want to make sure that what we are doing is providing attractive risk-adjusted returns both to our internal shareholders, the management shareholders at Mill Creek, as well as our external shareholders. And all that from a debt stop just seven and a half short years ago. So that's a very impressive achievement. How do you set goals? Uh, What do you think success looks like if you look 5, 10, 20 years out for Mill Creek? And how do you get everybody in the company to focus on those kinds of goals so that you can achieve them and thrive and be all that you want to be? Well, one of our core values is to be the best. And we think if you be the best, lots of good things follow that. For us, being the best is to be the most respected firm in the multifamily business. That is, it may seem like an ephemeral goal. I think that it is not. I think there are lots of ways to test that. 
both among public and private firms that are in our business. But our goal simply is to be the best at what we do, be that development, construction, the acquisition side of our business, property operations. We're constantly measuring customer level satisfaction through a number of independent sources. We're constantly checking with our institutional investors as to how we are performing relative to their expectations and relative to their experiences with others. But you set a vision like that, which for some might seem like a very lofty goal, but that's an easy goal for people to visualize and to put their shoulder to the wheel and work hard to help us achieve. And how do you perpetuate that? What's the narrative that you as a CEO, what are the vehicles that you as CEO use to reinforce and make sure that things happen, that you actually live up to those values and you do deliver on those goals? Well, again, we're, you know, one of the things that I have to do is, is not only listen to internal feedback, but external feedback as well. My focus day to day is primarily on strategic issues and opportunities and relationship building and management, especially in the capital markets. And so a lot of my feedback comes from those who are providing capital resources to Mill Creek Residential. Obviously, I can judge the overall performance of our business together with our other senior leaders here to ensure that that economically we're meeting our goals and objectives on an annual basis. The other thing that I you know, spend a lot of time both thinking about and working with our senior leadership team on is making sure that we have the right people in the right places to continue to drive performance and success. That includes succession planning in all of the key areas of the company and where we pride ourselves incidentally on growing and promoting from within, but where we have to go outside, we, we have a fairly rigorous process of interviewing candidates that we bring in to make sure that the fit with the Mill Creek culture is what we believe is a fit for success. Each one of these could become the subject of a long conversation. You recently accomplished uh, a significant transaction in the company. Would you like to describe what led to that uh, transaction? What was the transaction and what are you hoping to have accomplished by virtue of this transaction? You're referring to our recent recapitalization? I am. Sure. When we formed Mill Creek in late 2010 and launched it in 2011, we did that by virtue of a large capital investment from a large state pension plan that was advised by an independent investment advisor together with the Trammell Crow family provided most of the original investment capital that helped us to launch Mill Creek. As we, we have been evaluating, as we always do, options to help those investors monetize their investment. We do that from time to time. It's just a part of our strategic evaluation process. And Actually, about this time last year, maybe a month, uh, the month of June last year, we were introduced to another public state plan that we came to understand had been looking for a platform not unlike Mill Creek's to invest in and then through that platform to invest additional capital to help grow a portfolio of earning assets to match against uh, their liabilities. That introduction and those conversations grew over the course of last summer and into the fall and then towards the end of the year resulted in the negotiation of a term sheet for a new investment in the Mill Creek by this particular pension plan. And it resulted in an acquisition or the acquisition rather of all of the outstanding shares that were previously held by outside investors, including the Trammell Crow family and some of the shares that were held by the Mill Creek management team. But importantly, our assessment of this investor caused the management team to want to convert a large component of their value of Mill Creek into a new investment with our new partner going forward. The result is a business today, Gotti, that I think is capitalized solidly for the long term with an investor that has that type of view and that also wants to allocate additional capital to us to deploy for them in the apartment asset class. 
it also resulted in a in a terrific economic result for our original investors. So for me, at a personal level, it was the best of all worlds because every stakeholder in the business came away, I think, believing that the transaction was a terrific transaction for them. And when you have a transaction where everyone on all sides wins, that usually is a good sign for good things to come. Absolutely. How does this set Mill Creek to enjoy competitive advantages kind of moving forward? What are the greatest benefits that the company, the platform, derives out of this new relationship or or new structure? Well, I think first and foremost, it enables Mill Creek to remain private, which is, uh, I think, given our business model, which is heavily oriented to the development of new apartment communities, is a preferred model vis-a-vis the public model. Secondly, it gives us access to capital to continue to deploy into both what we call build-to-core development, that is development of new apartment assets to be held over a long period of time and capitalized in a way to generate steady income as well as acquisitions. And then I'd say third, with this particular partner, real encouragement to reach out to institutional capital sources more broadly than we have in the past and aggregate capital in larger pools than we typically have in the past, all with an eye toward using the strengths of of Mill Creek to aggregate on behalf of capital partners series of high-quality apartment asset uh, portfolios that can be held for indefinite periods of time. So I think for us, it probably leads to deeper penetration and, and expansion within our existing markets, probably expansion beyond our existing markets into a few new markets. And there is also apparently an interest in investing beyond our core business of market rate rental apartments into other areas of the shelter business, all of which is very exciting for us. Sounds like a very good, solid, strategic relationship that will be providing you great uh, opportunities and resources, not just competitive advantages in in what you do now. Charlie, I want to go back to something you said earlier and maybe explore that a little bit. When you were describing the changes that are affecting or going to be affecting the business, you mentioned technological advancements. I want to come back to that in a moment. But you also spoke about how much more sophisticated residents are today than they've been in the past and how many more things you need to do and do them better in order to satisfy this uh, increasingly more savvy and sophisticated consumer. So can you talk a little bit about not so much what are they demanding that you are offering, but how are you thinking about your relationship with your consumer in a way that may be different in the future than has been in the past? whether it's technology-enabled, social media, or things you do to provide them services and products, what is going to change five years, 10 years from today, looking back, will say, look, here's how the relationship between the owner and the resident has changed. And here's how owners are looking and dealing with residents differently. Well, we could probably also devote an entire podcast to that. But in the interest of brevity, let me see if I can just touch on a few areas, hit a few high spots. First of all, as I think about a resident customer, the universe that we draw from today is as broad and diverse as it ever has been in the history of the apartment business. We have effectively three very large generational cohorts that constitute demand for apartment housing today. The first of those are the baby boomers, those born you know, from about 1947, 48, through about 65 or 66. Until the millennials came along, that was the largest generational cohort in the history of the United States, roughly 70, I think 70 to 75 million people. And then we have the millennial generation, which today are the youngest of those is about 21 or 22 years of age. And the oldest of those is 40. And that population within that age group is right at 80 million adults. And now we have what demographers call Generation Z. The youngest of those are just being born. 
and the eldest of those are about 20 or 21 years of age. So they are just now reaching the point where they are graduating from college or trade school or getting out of high school and getting into the workforce and have a need for housing beyond living at home. That population, the population of that cohort is another 80 plus million people. So you add those three together, if my math's right, you're over 230 million people that create a potential for some demand for apartment living. We've never before in the United States had a population cohort of that size that represented potential demand for apartments. They also represent potential demand for single family housing, both rental and for sale, by the way. But my point simply is, it is an exceptionally large population cohort from which to provide housing, from which demand for housing will be created. But if you think about those three generations, they're very different in terms of how they live, their sociological tendencies, how they work, what they expect from a work environment. And so one of the things I think a lot about Gotti, and we're just at the very early stages of this, obviously, but one of the things I think a lot about is how do we serve three very different levels or types of customer expectation, given the differences between these three generations. It's not unlike, in my mind, the hospitality business, which serves lots of different social sets and customer profiles and has learned how to do that pretty well, both with brand segmentation and service level segmentation. I think the apartment industry may be headed in a direction not unlike the the hospitality industry has been in now for 10 or 15 years. I do think we are trending more and more to a service-oriented, hospitality-oriented environment for our resident customer, regardless of their age. It is unclear to us right now exactly how the apartment home floor plan and the amenities both within the apartment homes and the communities that, that the homes comprise will need to be formatted and formulated to address these various cohorts. But I think it's fair to say that change is coming. It is a fascinating parallel to draw to the um, hospitality industry where service certainly is one aspect. Service and marketing, if you will, customer acquisition and communications are one aspect of their segmentation and the differentiation in how they address various customer segments. But two other elements are also very important. One is design, which is the FF&E, the the color schemes, the furniture arrangements, the relationship with light, and, and so on. And last one is the actual physical plant itself, right? Are rooms bigger and smaller? Are they taller or lower? Are they? Is there more common amenity? And what are those amenities that are being offered between restaurant, food and beverage, and health club and others? So I think uh, we would be very curious to track how Mill Creek and others develop their strategies around that model. But I I like that parallel. That's great insight. Charlie, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about mistakes made, lessons learned, difficult decisions that you had to make. And if you knew then what you now know, what would you have done differently? I know it's a broad question, broad category. So feel free to pick any string of this that you would like. Well, Mr. Crow often said, there is as much risk in doing nothing as in doing something. And as I've strived to always be doing something over a long career, I've certainly made my share of mistakes. But probably the biggest lesson I've learned, I would say, is one I actually learned twice. First, as a mortgage banker during the real estate recession of the mid-1970s, and then again as a developer during the real estate recession in the late 80s and early 90s. And that is the risk, the danger really, of too much leverage, particularly if leverage is in the form of short-term debt. I learned the hard way of the importance and the benefits of maintaining a conservative capital strategy, asset by asset, and at the same time, 
having adequate liquidity at the corporate level of your organization. I think it's important to always remember that equity is your friend and debt is not when cycles deteriorate and that you rarely know that you're at a point of a cyclical deterioration until you're well into that phase of the cycle. And parenthetically, I think by definition, that usually also means that you're beyond the point of opportunity for a favorable recapitalization. So a thoughtful, conservative capital structure, asset by asset, and a lot of liquidity or at least adequate liquidity based on one's overall business model at the corporate level, I think are critically important. The last thing I'd say is I also learned that it's important during cyclical downturns to guard against falling victim to others whom you might deeply respect, saying it can't get any worse or this won't last much longer because it all too often does. I really like this uh, sort of two-step lesson here about preparing for fortifying the balance sheet, et cetera, and then being realistic about uh, where we are in the cycle. If we had more time, I would be happy to give you my examples of the same two lessons or at least the same two sets of experiences. Uh, what I'm curious about is particularly with respect to the first point on the what I would call dry powder. It is probably relatively easier during the peak uh, portion of the cycle to refinance and bring down the debt, improve the terms and lower the cost of debt so that the portfolio or the asset is a bit more cycle ready and run a lower risk of foreclosure or lower risk of, of losing control of the asset. But what about the creation of dry powder? If you use your dry powder to pay down debt and to, uh, and to fix debt, uh, then does that prevent you from having the capital that you may need or may want to have uh, during that stage of the recovery where capital is not available to borrow, but opportunities are abundant? I think both theoretically and practically it does. And, uh, you know, it's always dangerous to use dry powder, to borrow your phrase, to remargin debt just because you're in a cyclical trough. If you've capitalized thoughtfully, there should be enough cash flow generation from income-producing properties to service debt. You may not be able to make distributions to equity for a time, but you should at least be able to service your debt. And if you're able to do that, then your dry powder, at least in my mind, depending on your level of liquidity, can be directed in different ways, but two primary ways. The first is just to fund overhead that is necessary to run the business during a cyclical trough. You know, the last thing your capital partners, debt or equity, want is for there to be a you know a wholesale abandoning of the business by by the staff. And so you need liquid resources in order to cover overhead during downtimes when revenues obviously are likely to decline. The other reason to maintain adequate liquidity levels is the one that you alluded to, which is to be able to take advantage of other problems that are out in the marketplace because theoretically you would be better capitalized than others. That's great insight. Charlie, a CEO always has to decide how to spend their time, what to focus on. How do you prioritize both the time and where you spend your time and the projects that you decide to pursue and focus on? Well, as I as I mentioned a moment ago, my focus is primarily on strategic issues and opportunities. I make time and try to take a lot of time to look further down the road than just the next year or two and to try to look around corners to the extent that I can, both for opportunities as well as impediments. I do spend a lot of my time on what I call relationship building and management, particularly in the capital markets. Capital is obviously a foremost component of our business. And then just the overall performance of the of the business. My personal style is to be more collaborative as opposed to a top-down manager or personality. And so I try very hard to work with our senior leadership, all of whom have been in this business together with me and and even before me for a long time and, and are highly capable and competent. But I work closely with them just to make sure that the performance of the business, both on a quarterly and an annual basis, and then over a longer longer period of time is hitting the benchmarks that we lay out in a strategic planning process, which for us started in 2012 and gets updated every three years. 
And then I think I also probably mentioned this, but making sure you have the right people surrounding you and then making sure that you have those people in the right places to help drive performance and success is the ultimate responsibility of leadership and try constantly to work with my senior partners to ensure that that is happening. So one of the greatest challenges CEOs tell me they have in playing out their role is to delegate or to uh, empower the people that work with them to execute the business and to stay on track while also keeping tabs to make sure that it actually does happen. You mentioned that in your comments about how you spend your time and how you uh, work with your team. What is your tracking mechanism? How do you make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and that you have an early enough warning if something is falling off the track and to, to be able to jump in and pick it up and fix it? Well, ours is a people business, obviously, whether it's internal or external. I, I said to one of my partners in a conversation many years ago before Mill Creek that as the CEO, regardless of whether you have three employees or 300 employees or 3,000 employees, at least one of those is going to be having their worst day of the year just about every day. And invariably, when somebody is having their worst day, whether it's for personal reasons or professional reasons, it bubbles up to the CEO. So it's remarkable to me, and but it has been consistently so, that when you have performance issues within an organization, whether it's a person or a group of persons, those are the things you actually find out about more quickly rather than less because it impacts those with whom they work and it ultimately impacts your your institutional capital partners and certainly your residents at the community and apartment home level. So I keep an ear to the ground, but you, you might be surprised that I hear more about a problem from time to time when they occur than I hear about the accolades. <laughs> the, the accolades of the CEO is usually the last to hear, the last one to hear. But we also do, you know, we have a fairly rigorous approach to annual performance reviews. And uh, we try to give people candid feedback, both good and bad. We're actually enhancing that process this year. So I think it will be even more helpful and proactive for each of our associates, regardless of what their role and responsibility is. And then, you know, ours is, a, as you know, is a very granular business. It starts locally. We don't run this business top down. It really is a bottoms up business. And we measure results from the bottoms up. So we are constantly looking at every community, whether it's an operating community or a community under construction or a community to be built that's in our pipeline and communicating with our people in those local offices relative to whatever that status is. Well, Charlie, you're in an enviable position where troubles do bubble up to you and and come out early. It is not all that common. So I know you appreciate the uniqueness of that situation. It has to be the result of both a culture and a set of behaviors on your part to encourage people and to come and share concerns and bring them to you so that you can deal with them early enough. Most situations don't have that luxury. And by the time issues come up to the CEO, they tend to be problems, not just a correctable situation. So good for you. Maybe as an exit question, I can get you to think a little bit about what advice do you have for people who are looking or who are developing their careers as leaders in real estate and in general, where would you advise them to go? What would you advise them to read? Who would you advise them to meet with if they're going to try and become the best that they can be? Well, I think if someone is an aspiring or an emerging leader, the first thing I would encourage them to do is to reach out to existing relationships, both inside and outside their business world, and mentors whether they be business mentors or otherwise, for advice and counsel. No one knows you better than close relationships who are both personal or business friends. And of course, you have to be willing in doing that to open yourself up and show a little vulnerability. But that would be my first piece and maybe my foremost piece of advice. Another thing I would say is that it's always important to be honest with yourself. I think that probably goes without saying, but that is not easy for some. And so I would encourage anyone to be honest in assessing their strengths and weaknesses and to be honest with others in sharing those strengths and weaknesses. It's important to know what you're good at and what you're not good at. 
And then, as I have said, I think now a couple of times, I think it's really important to surround yourself with smart people, people that could do what you do at some point, if not right now, and who you feel like are the very best at what they do. And then I, it's something that we have done for 25 plus years at Mill Creek and at Trammell Crow Residential prior to Mill Creek is we have, as we identify emerging leaders, we have encouraged them to go to the Bell Leadership Institute, which happens to be at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It was founded by Dr. Jerry Bell, a longtime and tenured professor at the business school at UNC, who has consulted with a variety of Fortune 500 companies on leadership, education, and and personal development for aspiring leaders over many, many years. We have had a terrific success in working with the Bell Leadership Institute in the the development and ongoing development of emerging leaders at both Trammell Crow Residential and Mill Creek. I think embedded in what you were talking about is also networking with other leaders and other people in the industry to build up knowledge and relationships, which invariably will come back to help and networking in organizations like ULI and PRIA and other places where there are other aspiring leaders and established leaders that that can be a source of give and take and lots of lessons uh, learned. Charlie, we are sadly coming to the end of our time together. Uh, I appreciate your spending time sharing your wisdom and experiences, telling us a little bit about your story and being a part of our podcast series. Uh, It's been an honor and a pleasure knowing you and working with you and certainly visiting with you today at this podcast. I know we covered a lot. I know there's a lot more to be covered. So I hope that we can have a 2.0 version of this uh, maybe in a few months or in a few years in part to check back on how things developed vis-a-vis some of the new initiatives and thoughts that you are undergoing as a business and as a person, and in part just to keep up with one another. So thanks for your time, and I really appreciate your contribution to our podcast series. Thank you, Gotti, and the pleasure is really mine. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you today and with your audience. Very well. Be well, Charlie. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Gotti. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.